Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a podcast wherein I discuss the the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the uh, washing machine repairman, history fan, and your ranty host. (laughs) Joining me is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula. How are you doing, Moth? Hey, I I don't fix washers. (laughs) I break them. It happens. Does it? <laughs> uh, as a very quick review, we've discussed the Smith family in depth and how their 19th century Christian occultist worldview helped shape the impressionable mind of Joseph Smith Jr., the alleged prophet and founder of the Mormon religion. We discussed Joe the teenage witch summoning treasure guardians that he later retconned into angelic messengers and then got into Joe's uh, magical mentors and the subsequent antics uh, as a fledgling sorcerer, which eventually led to his arrest and trial for said behaviors. Uh, On the last episode, Joseph took a wife and finally gained access to the gold Bible he'd been talking about for some time. His former money-digging companions quickly catch wind of this, and as they owned equal portions of the money-digging proceeds, felt they had as much right to the plates as the Smiths did. As mentioned, these highly prized plates were likely no more than a masonry brick with attached sheets of hammered tin. But uh, these men clearly believed that they were gold plates and that they owned a piece of it. Uh, Joseph, like his sideshow brethren, only allowed the plates to be felt through a heavy canvas or while in a box or both. Um, They, under any circumstances, could not be visually inspected by anyone but Joe, lest the eyes of the observer melt from their very sockets like Indiana Jones Nazis. (laughs) So days after the uh, Joe's alleged sprint through the woods and his judo chopping three attackers into submission... Uh, Folks around Palmyra uh, began inquiring about the long-awaited gold Bible. Joseph Knight, who decided to stay on with the Smiths for some time, remember he showed up with his wagon a few days before all this started, and the the week following just was nuts, so he just hung out because it was fun. I'm guessing he didn't have a wife or kids, or maybe he did and he hated them. Uh, yeah, Joseph Knight did have a wife and kids. <laughs> he was <laughs> All right, he hated him. actively, um, Avoiding. so Joseph Knight, um, absentee father and treasure <laughs> digger. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, he, he remembered locals, including, uh, the once partner, now rival money diggers, uh, calling on Smith and offering up money and property for a viewing of the plates. Um, but as Dan Vogel, uh, commented, this was likely in jest, and the inquirers, quote, suspected their money was perfectly safe. So this was probably people coming to poke fun at Smith because mm-hmm. uh, they they knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I think that's the most plausible <laughs> given his reputation for the last few years. Yeah. Anyway, the, the money diggers, after being denied a viewing, uh, apparently formed a posse. And Joseph just so happens to rush home in time to warn the family of the group's coming. And the family hides the plates, wrapped in a cloth, remember, under the fireplace hearthstones right before the men finally arrive. I teased a little bit last week that um, some historians think Joseph kind of was in league with the money diggers and they were kind of helping him build a pipe in the area. Mm-hmm. This is where that becomes apparent as a as a plausibility. So facing a perhaps murderous mob of armed and probably intoxicated occultists. Uh, Lucy Mack recorded that Joseph Jr. commanded the family to charge the posse, all of them running out of the main door, screaming and acting crazy. This, as mentioned, probably intoxicated mob. Uh, They're like, where's my money? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, They immediately disperse uh, Benny Hill style away from the Smith farm uh, to regroup. What? I, Benny Hill, I, I imagine them all just like the Smith family running out of the residence, acting crazy, like banging pots, and the drunk occultist just like, <laughs> and all of them running away in speed. Wait, so <laughs> they run in shouting, where's my money? They get spooked off? So so Joseph runs into the house, yeah. warns the family yeah. that this group is coming. Hides they the- hide the plates under the yeah. hearthstones, and immediately this group like ri- comes up over the hill, and they're like in the silhouette of the sunrise or the sunset and joseph and he's like guys 
charge them and they just run out of the house acting crazy and like waving things and throwing stones okay. and stuff and the mob who probably is drunk like i mentioned just like freaks out and, like, and they run away <laughs> and just like this is too much and again because they were armed and probably drunk i i kind of leaned towards the joseph was they were helping joseph hype build a pipe about this whole thing okay just because it yeah it, why would you charge out there why and would then you just go out there run with, back with, loaded weapons and just be like oh god is the the 10 year old threw a stone at me <laughs> and run away anyway after some time two of the men uh beeman and sam lawrence sam lawrence is the guy that originally saw the magic specs okay uh he came back to smith and in a, to the smiths in an attempt to bargain with joe but did so unsuccessfully and uh following a third failure to get the plates the rodsman beeman uh, whose daughter actually Brigham Young later takes as one of his many wives. The Rodsman Beeman whips out his divining rods and apparently points right to the hearth where Joseph had uh, the family had told the family to hide the plates. Um, as Beeman's daughter was with the Smam, as uh, Beeman's daughter was with the Smith family the night before when they hid the plates, uh-huh. it seems possible that Beeman already knew exactly where the plates were supposed to be hidden upon arrival. The men apparently leave without any more commotion, simply as an as an attempt to intimidate Smith by letting him know that they have significant power and that they know where the plates are. Joseph uh, quickly moves the plates to a new hiding spot under the floorboards of his father's cooper shop. Uh, and after coincidentally receiving an angelic warning to move the plates once more, Joseph hid them uh, this time in the loft or ceiling of the same cooper shop. And uh, that night, someone came to look through the floor, dug up the earth, and would have found the plates had they not been removed. Okay. Uh, So just miraculously, he he knows to to keep them safe. Um, So obviously someone knew that he had done that someone they yeah. suspected and he uh so his first thought was like oh man they're they're money diggers they're gonna dig under the house under the foundation and mm-hmm. just like drop the plates out through the hearth which is plausible uh so he hides them in the cooper shop mm-hmm. and then the ang- angel tells him to hi- hide them again oh. he puts them in the loft and then someone comes and wrecks the place that night yeah searching for the plates and they dig up a bunch of stuff yeah. in the yeah. cooper shop and make a mess so someone uh, they suspected yeah. was going to do that uh, and so Dan Vogel, who I've been mentioning, I get a lot of this uh, from his uh, work on this. Again, probably correctly <laughs> surmises that this was all a ruse concocted by Joe, whom after seeing the instant attention and blind faith of his family in an object they had never seen, <laughs> sealed the deal by instilling in the whole community that he was divinely ordained to conduct himself as he was. I totally agree with this. Whether or not the money diggers were in league with him, mm-hmm. I again I just don't really I think it matters like clearly they believed he had plates many of them later came out against him and not because they didn't get a piece of that but because they were like oh you turned this into a religion and you're like hurting people I thought you were just I thought you just wanted to like sell this and make some money yeah just play a game so so Dan Vogel's saying that possibly he let his family know that he was hiding it down there and then said that he had this angelic intervention mm-hmm. and that somebody tore the place up. And, and he, he kind of suggests that Joe probably went, went out in the middle of the night and wrecked the place up at, right. to make it look right, like to make it new, look like, yeah. That's, and, and he just like miraculously kept them safe. Right. Um, okay. And he, okay. he, he instills, I didn't have. like a good mesmerist, he instills little um, seeds of faith in his and the people he's trying to do this to. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't really know how far into this his family was. Clearly Joe, this was Joe's idea. Um, and that he was, uh, doing all the work at at this point, the differing accounts makes it really hard to tell whether or not the family was in on it, whether or not the witnesses who were about to talk about, they are in on it, but everybody gets conned and everybody ends up like not really liking Smith, except his family. His family seemed to like stick by him the whole time very mafia style mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that at least some of them were in on it probably all of them so anyway with with all this commotion going on in a relatively small community uh, everybody in town was talking about joe the spirit now angel 
the gold Bible and Joe's small skirmishes with his former money digging cohorts and these like local wizard battles. Um, it's during this time that Joe finds his first major financial backer in the impressionable businessman with deep pockets and little common sense, Martin Harris. For those of you familiar with the uh, Mormon episode of South Park, Martin Harris is the (laughs) dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. Martin Harris uh, had a local reputation as being a gullible man, prone to spiritual visions and bizarre religious inclinations. Uh, He apparently was like an honest man, and he was an astute businessman, and everybody kind of respected him as a businessman. But they're like, on matters of spirituality, he's fucking demented. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> One Palmyra resident, John Clark, noted that Harris, quote, had always been a firm believer in dreams and visions and supernatural appearances, such as apparitions and ghosts, and therefore was a fit subject for such men as Smith and his colleagues to operate on. Everybody in town saw what was happening yeah. when it happened and immediately were just like, okay, poor Harris, man. It's interesting that they say colleagues, too. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, everybody knew Smith had associates that were in on this with him. It's just everybody kind of disagreed about who was in on it and when and how much and, you know. Yeah, which they had to keep that up. But cause... if we if we go down all those rabbit holes, this will we'll never get to the, the drugs and <laughs> the Mormons. I just kind of like, this is how I see all of this. And this is how my interpretation of history. And I've been studying it since I was like 13. So I've been at it a while. A bit. A bit, a bit. It's the one thing I know a lot about, other than washing dishes. Uh, Clark later continued, uh, No matter where he went, he saw visions and supernatural appearances all around him. He told a gentleman in Palmyra after one of the excursions to Pennsylvania, uh, while the translation of the Book of Mormon was going on, that on the way he met the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked alongside him in the shape of a deer for two or three miles, talking with him as familiar as familiarly as a man talks with another. So on his way back from Pennsylvania and doing all this translation work, and I think this may perhaps bespeak uh, to the entheogenic explanation for things, um, on his way home, he just like meets a deer in the woods and they walk alongside each other and the deer's talking to him. He's like, yo, dude, I'm, I'm Jesus. <laughs> Um, that, (laughs) I mean, he could just be a a full-blown schizophrenic, but, uh, as we'll see, there's a few times where Joseph may have, uh, given the men the Lord's Supper, as they later call it. (laughs) Perhaps in the same deer in the forest incident, or maybe another time entirely, Harris also reported that he, quote, seen Jesus Christ and that he is the handsomest man he ever did see. He had also seen the devil, whom he described as a very sleek-haired fellow with four feet and a head like that of a jackass. Unquote. Um, it's unclear if the shape-shifting Jesus was handsome as a deer or just as a man, but uh, I like to imagine so. I like to imagine it was a really handsome deer with yeah. a Jesus beard, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. With those Jesus six-packs? Yeah. Yeah. It was a toned... Toned deer. Toned Jesus deer. Does he get to be brown this time? <laughs> yeah, of course he would be. Cool. Deer brown. What do you mean, of course? Just like Jesus would have been. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, uh, Joseph marks out the affluent Martin Harris as a man who might be interested in supporting him financially while he gets the whole, you know, being a prophet routine down and possibly eventually publishing a gold Bible. So Joseph sends his mother Lucy over to the Harris residence. And this is why I think some of the family was in on it. Like, really, Lucy, she covers for him a few times when he gets the plates. Mm -hmm. And now she's going over to procure the first financial backer of of the church. Mm -hmm. And she clearly is playing a role. And I think she knows it. Again, that's my own editorializing. Uh, So Joseph sends Lucy over to the Harris residence. And uh, I'm going to give you the following event in Harris's own words, as I simply can't point out what should be painfully obvious to you all. Better than Harris does himself. <laughs> it's it's tragic. <laughs> I think he was in on it too. Really? But there's also parts of this where clearly Joseph is conning him. Okay. So I think I think he was a, a pious uh, religious man who thought he could genuinely make money off of this. And I think he did believe Joseph and was being conned by him, but also was an astute businessman. And like a lot of uh, rich Christians... 
you know, market on that. Yeah. Quote, this is Harris again. When she, meaning Lucy Max Smith, commenced talking with me, she told me respecting his bringing home the plates, meaning Joseph, and many other things, and said that Joseph had sent her over and wished me to come and see him. I told her that I had a time appointed when I would go, and that when the time came, I should then go, but I did not tell her when it was. I sent my boy to harness my horse and take her home. She wished my wife and daughter to go with her, and they went and spent most of the day, meaning at the Smiths. When they came home, I questioned them about them, meaning the plates. My daughter said they were about as much as she could lift. They were now in a glass box, and my wife said they were heavy to lift. They both lifted them, meaning they, they were in the canvas up. in a, in a yeah. box made for carrying glass but with a slot in it so you could, like, put your hands inside it and feel them and lift them. Okay. Anyway, I, I waited a day or two when I got up in the morning, took my breakfast, and told my folks I was going to the village, but I went directly to old Mr. Smith's. I found that Joseph had gone away to work for Peter Ingersoll to get some flour. I was glad he was absent, for it gave me an opportunity of talking with his wife and the family about the plates. I talked with them separately to see if their stories agreed, and I found they did agree. When Joseph came home, I did not wish him to know that I had been talking with him. So I took him by the arm and led him away from the rest and requested him to tell me the story, which he did as follows. He said, an angel had appeared to him and told him it was God's work. Joseph had before described this manner of finding the plates. He found them by looking in the stone he found in the well of Mason Chase. The family had likewise told me the same thing. So he, he didn't tell Harris he found them by direction of the plates, but by using the stone and the hat thing, and that he was just talking to an angel about them. Uh, Joseph said that the angel told him he must quit the company of the money diggers, that they were wicked men among them, that he must have no more to do with them. He must not lie nor swear nor steal. He told him to go and look in the spectacles, and he would show him the man that would assist him. That he did so, and he saw myself, Martin Harris, standing before him. <laughs> Wouldn't you know... That struck me with such surprise, I told him I wished him to be very careful about these things. Well, said he, I saw you standing before me as plainly as I do now. I said, if it is the devil's work, I will have nothing to do with it. But if it is the Lord's, you can have all the money necessary to bring it before the world. He said an angel told him that the plates must be translated, printed, and sent before the world. Yes, for, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And pivot. <laughs> um, I grew up around this exact kind of thing, you know, like intelligent people thinking that they were being critical or skeptical. Yes, yeah. But so utterly blinded by their own religious optimism and like yearning for spiritual validation yeah. that they allow themselves to be taken advantage of by yeah. what should be obvious confidence peoples or con artists yeah joseph saw a local wealthy man to dupe and set up a long con probably i think with some of his family members to orchestrate a convincing spiritual conversion this is just the tip of the iceberg however poor harris uh locals were getting restless at this point and with joe's near miss with the law in a not too far away bainbridge he convinced martin harris that it was time to flee with the plates this is martin harris Quote, it was unsafe for him to remain, so I determined that he must go to his father-in-law's in Pennsylvania, which had already been the plan. <laughs> he wrote to his brother-in-law, Alva Hale, requesting him to come for him. I advised Joseph that he must pay all his debts before starting. I paid them for him and furnished him money for his journey. <laughs> so Joseph skipped town while the getting was good and swindled his new whale of a mark into paying off his debts in the process, freeing him up to make the move to his wife's family, which, again, had been the plan for over two months at that point. Martin even furnished him with $50 walking money in 1829. That's, uh, that's like $1,300 in 2020 money. Jeez. And uh, so far, Joe is making a much better profit for profit than he ever made as an occultist. But uh, as we will explore, he didn't stray too far away from his occult praxis, mechanically, shall we say. Uh, he may have only recently been calling himself a modern-day prophet. He, to his core, was uh, a ceremonial folk magician. But he didn't tell Harris that his in-laws don't agree with all of this? Uh, well, we'll we'll see. Like, 
Hale really wanted to be near his daughter, clearly, and he was willing to put up with some of Joe's bullshit to do that, but... It's also clear that he made sure he kept Joe at arm's length. Okay. Was just I like, can understand why. I want my daughter back mm-hmm. or to be near her, but I don't like you and I don't buy any of this bullshit for a second. He's probably just worried about her safety. Yeah. And it, like, and that's why I think he agreed to help Smith in the limited way that he did mm-hmm. was more to pr- make sure she was okay. Yeah. Because he did not like his profession he was just like this is gonna end in ruins sounds like a good dad i yeah he seems like a a good dad that loved his daughter yeah and was just trying to like look out for her yeah we'll see a bit more of that very quickly so yeah his father-in-law hale uh received joe and emma there shortly afterwards and uh, furnished them with a small outbuilding on his farm to live in so he again kept them at arms like go live in that outbuilding but at least i know she has a place to stay Mm -hmm. and a roof over her head Hale, uh, perhaps recognizing Smith, was still up to his old tricks, refused to allow Joe to keep the plates in his home if Joe refused to allow him to visually inspect the plates. Uh, (laughs) He said something to the effect of, like, if you keep something in my house that I can't look at, you can't keep it in my house. Which I think was a smart, very eloquent way of dealing with Joe's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joseph, forced to oblige his father-in-law and now landlord, uh, hides the plates once more in the nearby woods. Where he had been digging with the money diggers, you know, a couple years before when he originally met Emma. Okay, so he knows these woods. Yeah, yeah. he knows these okay. woods. He then, uh, to prove that he had a working occupation, despite making earlier claims that his firstborn was to translate the gold Bible, he originally was telling people that his, you know, I can't translate these. I'm just here to let people know they exist, and then my firstborn will translate them. Oh, really? Yeah. But it, he all of a sudden had to prove to Hale that he had a working occupation because he was living with him. And that was what he considered to be translating the golden plates she was now getting paid by harris to do so he was like oh i have a working occupation i'm being paid to translate this book uh so he he does so uh using the same small brown stone taken from willard chase like we've been mentioning and utilized the same technique he did while scrying for the money diggers And again, I think I read this last week, but uh, as Hale mentioned, the manner in which he pretended to read and interpret was the same as when he looked for the money diggers with his stone, his hat and his hat over his face. While the book of plates was at the same time in the woods, he was criticizing Joe for not having them present. So despite making a court testimony in front of Judge Neely just over a year prior regarding quitting the practice of money digging due to its straining and doing damage to his eyesight, and then making another promise to Hale that he would quit the money diggers, he didn't until he got the plates or fabricated them, whatever. Joe continued the practice of scrying for another, like, at least two years, so um, probably Harris until he is... died. Oh, till who died? Joseph Smith. Uh, we can confirm that he was using the, the, the stone directly for the next like two to four years, but he kept the stones on his person until he died because oh, okay. they were important to him, meaning that I think he used them. He clearly used them to dictate a lot of what's called the Doctrine and Covenants, which is like a companion novel to the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. We'll get into what it is later, but uh, he used the stone to dictate a lot of like revelation on top of translating. So again, it's like, I don't think this was a, tr- he translated anything. I think he received this book in the same way like Crowley received the Book of the Law. This was like a, a transmission not a translation. Mm-hmm. Isaac Hale was not the only Hale family member to make note of this. Joseph's like conistry. Okay. Quote, when Joseph was translating the Book of Mormon, had occasion more than once to go into his immediate presence and saw him engaged at his work of translation. The mode of procedure consisted in Joseph's placing the stone in the crown of his hat and putting his hat into his face so as to entirely cover his face, resting his elbows upon his knees and then dictating word after word while the scribes wrote it down, unquote. I keep mentioning this because... Most Mormons would be just like, what? To know that he did not use magic spectacles attached to a breastplate in this very like eloquent, like scholarly, I'm just translating directly from a gold Bible. He never had the plates in front of him. He was using the same occult methods he used before, and he used a brown stone, not the magic specs that an angel gave him. He apparently never really used them to translate any of the Book of Mormon or any of the anything. They just, like, disappeared after he got the plates. That story um, got old. And exact, and, I th- I think and you had to, like, have it all there. I think he made the specs to buy himself more time 
And then once he got, well, he had to hurriedly finish the plates. Maybe he thought he really could he make them too. Kind of phased out the specs. And he tried making them and was like, "Shit, this is hard." Yeah. Um, okay. And then later he told everybody, "Oh, I this accident happened, which we're about to get into." So the angel took away all of the interpreters and the bolt. I can't, I can't do anything now because the angel took them. So and also you can't see them because I don't have them. The angel took them. Yeah, my supervisor. <laughs> but we'll get into that. Joseph's wife, Emma, uh, who was acting as his scribe at the time, herself verified this translation method while retelling her, uh, the history to her son, Joseph Smith III. Quote, in writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him. He's sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. So again, she like a lot of the plates were never there. He was just sitting in, <laughs> sitting in a chair next to her. Just like with his head in his hat. Oh, your dad. <laughs> um, anyway, I take all, uh, uh, the time to provide all these accounts because, again, Mormons are totally aware of, uh, of all of this. They're familiar with Joseph's artwork, like looking through the, these magic specs and whatnot. In reality, no one ever saw this metal book or the magic specs, and he translated it entirely with the super seer stones he found before the book. Uh, anyway, the Book of Mormon... Like I said, it should be more correctly categorized as like a channeled or received book, I think. Anyway, during this period uh, where Emma acted as Joseph's scribe, Emma transcribed the first chapter or part of it, uh, the book within the larger Book of Mormon, the Lost Book of Lehi. We'll get into why it was lost and hilariously how Joe fixed the situation. Uh, but Martin Harris later described the process of translation by, quote, by aid of the seer stone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet and written by Martin, who later took over the position of scribe, and when finished would say written, and if correctly written, the sentence would disappear and another would appear in its place. But if not written correctly, it remained until corrected so that the translation was just as it was engraven upon the plates, precisely in the language then used. He then later said it, they were like uh, bright Roman characters. So imagine like uh, him looking in the the hat and emerging out of this stone is one or two sentences in t golden times new roman <laughs> and he it like stays there until the scribe has it correct mm -hmm. and then it disappears and fades and then another two one or two sentences comes up kind of like a a mixture of jumanji and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like a um a word program okay yeah so uh, in the uh, February of 1828, he's now been staying with the Hales for a couple months uh, through the winter. Martin Harris arrives in Harmony to help attempt to verify the plates' uh, antiquity and authenticity by having them examined by actual experts with real credentials. Oh, so he again, has experts come. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, again, he's, he's trying to be critical and skeptical, right. and he's given this guy a lot of money and... So a lot of people, he's probably going around saying, hey, I'm funding this. This is really cool. And people are like, huh. Well, as we'll see, uh, particularly his wife and his daughter, uh -huh. who handled the plates, originally were like, yeah, I mean, there was something in there. There was something, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he keeps funding them, and it's very obvious that his wife and his daughter have a huge problem with like how much money he spent on this. Yeah, okay. As they should. As they should. Uh, remember, Joseph claimed that the plates were written in what he called Reformed Egyptian, and uh, described them as also as uh, Chaldaic or Syrian. So this was supposed to be like a, an Egyptian shorthand or a, a more advanced form of Egyptian hieroglyphs. That's what he meant by Reformed Egyptian. It was like High Egyptian. So Joseph made up a sample of characters directly from the gold plates. He apparently just like directly copied some of the hieroglyphics onto a piece of paper. So people could see what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. okay. And he gives this to Martin Harris, who like while he was doing this, waited on the other side of a curtain. So apparently he retrieves the plates for a minute, like directly copies them out uh, while there's a curtain drawn between the two. So Martin Harris never gets to see the plates, mm -hmm. but it apparently was in the room with them at some time. Okay. You know, that like Nazi face melting thing kept mm -hmm. him from. Yeah, the curtain can save you. Barton then took this facsimile of reformed Egyptian with him to New York, where he sought the opinions of one Dr. Samuel Mitchell, uh, who was a professor of antiquities. And then he asked another guy, Charles Anthon of Columbia University. Oh, okay. So they could study the symbols. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, we'll get into why he did this. This is where we get 
the first major Harris Bumble. This whole thing is a just a catastrophe. It's supposed to be a means of like legitimizing yeah. Joseph's claims, but mm-hmm. it just didn't work out like that. Harris claimed that Mitchell to comment on the validity of these uh, characters, but politely pointed Harris in the direction of Charles Anthon and even like wrote him a recommendation. He was just like, I can't, I can't read this shit, but like maybe you can. Yeah. You're the other local guy that a I lot know. of people are just like, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> and especially with the money digging, like the, yeah. the, they were just like, this is magic. I'm like, I'm yeah, a professor I, and right, I'm trying, I, really don't. I don't want to get into yeah. this. Charles Anthon was allegedly so struck with the sample provided, according to Harris. This is Harris's account, which, as we'll find out, was actually Joseph Smith writing for Harris while Harris was excommunicated from the church. So this is all Joseph's version of the story. But oh. he, he retcons it as being like Harris's okay, so, account. Oh, God. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you that version. Okay. And then, and then Charles Anthon, eventually, this guy who was here, comes eventually back. comes back and is like, Hey, that's not, not at all what happened, actually. Wow. Um, okay, that's... <laughs> so again, right. this is just where things get messy. Okay, well, let's hear Joe's story. Uh, so Charles Anthon was apparently so struck with the sample provided that he immediately oh, drafted a certificate, oh, quote, authentic. certifying to the people of Palmyra that they were true characters and that the translation of such of them as had been translated was also correct. Unquote. All right. Harris reported that while, again, Joseph reported, Harris <laughs> reported, <laughs> that while attempting to leave, Anthon discovered that the plates were translated via occult operations and that the partially sealed book uh, of the Book of Mormon, like I mentioned, was unavailable to any but Joseph for study. Uh, so he was still like, hey, how did... How did you get these? Well, this, uh, well, this kid, this, kid, this <laughs> angel, and this, and immediately Anthony's like, "Oh fuck." Uh, okay, so, so, um, what it, what do they look like? And like, can I see them? I mean, if I, I could translate them. Can I see them? He was like, "Oh no, uh, your face will melt." Yeah, you're, you'll die, and like mu- a bunch of it's sealed. Like you can't even see most of it, and like Joseph, only Joseph can do it. And he's just like, oh, God damn it. And so he apparently, like, asks for their certificate and just, like, rips it up. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wait, is, is this the real story? We'll, we'll get to – yeah, apparently he did write something on a pa- on a paper and did, like, take it back and was like, oh, no. And then he also did publicly be, make a statement of, like, this is not what I was shown. And we actually have a copy of those characters. Okay, so – this is not Joseph's story, though, that he takes it back and rips it up. This is now the actual sci- scientist's story. This is where it gets confusing, because Anthon gave two descriptions. One of his descriptions said that he provided a, a basic description of what he saw, and what is on the piece of paper is totally different from what Joseph said Harris said, but that he did, after finding out it was ma- found through occult methods, was like, oh, well, let me see it then. And when he found out he couldn't see it, was like, yeah, I don't know, I'm not going to give you this. Yeah. And then later made a public statement about it. In one of his accounts, he gets a lot of criticism because he didn't mention the paper. But like, wh- wh- whatever. The- <laughs> what are these hieroglyphs that could have been easily? He, um... Anthon actually very accurately describes what they are. <laughs> He oh, are they not even? We'll get to what he says uh, in just a second, actually. Okay. So anyway, Anthon rips up the certificate, whatever was on it, and stated that no one could read a sealed book very correctly. <laughs> if it's, you know, if this thing is actually sealed and no one can see it and their face is going to melt, then no one can translate it. Very rational perspective. Um, <laughs> Mormons today take this whole exchange, as given by Smith, remember, as a fulfillment of the sections in Isaiah from the Bible, chapters uh, 29, verses 11 through 12. Wait, this whole thing is in the Bible? <laughs> remember, Joseph is retconning this to fit prophecy, is, uh, is what we're, we're getting at. So he, the whole is this whole Bible just like him listing off different reasons why he's not a liar? Um, Joseph really liked the the book of Isaiah in the Bible. Okay, and what's and that? And he actually, he, it's just a book in the Old Testament. Yeah. Isaiah was a prophet in uh, in the same lineage as like Moses. Okay, um, so, so someone he idolized or used as maybe as uh-huh. a reference for himself. 
Coincidentally, there's a very famous scene in Isaiah where an angel presses a burning coal to his lips and tells him to like breathe it. it essentially, like f- smokes what's something from a burning coal and then has visions of God. Oh. Um, anyway, <laughs> other parts of Isaiah, um, Joseph basically plagiarizes most of Isaiah. <laughs> Into the Book of Mormon. Okay. I wrote, so he really liked this this book of Isaiah. Okay. And there's a section in uh, chapter 29, verses 11 through 12. So wherein a, a learned man cannot read a sealed book, but that an uneducated man can. So there's just this weird scene in Isaiah where an, a learned man who knows many languages can't read a sealed book because obviously, but an uneducated man who is a visionary can translate it. Via the That's power in of God. Isaiah. That's in Isaiah. Oh, okay. So Joseph huh, here we are. retcons this whole scenario later. Yeah. To be to fit to, this yeah, pro- prophecy. Absolutely. And and Mormons today believe it to be a fulfillment of Isaiah. And but most Mormons were Christians, and so they would have known this book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and that was a big selling point for him. Is they were just like he's fulfilling these revela- these prophecies. Oh, oh it helps. And he's a modern it. day prophet. He's like okay. Moses today. It was okay. Yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> okay, I, I'm um, like I've heard this book before. So Her- Harris then goes back to Samuel Mitchell to be like, "Hey, you ripped up my certificate." And uh, Samuel Mitchell then apparently validates the whole analysis performed by Anthon. It's just like, yep, I don't know why he did that, but that's totally, a, this is correctly translated. Again, this is retcon. This is not actually what happened. Okay. This whole narrative uh, was relayed secondhand by Smith again a decade later under the guise of Martin Harris. And fortunately, just coincidentally, this Samuel Mitchell, who apparently verified everything, uh-huh. was dead when he did it. So nobody, like, out of everyone involved, Samuel Mitchell, he could claim whatever he wanted, and Samuel Mitchell couldn't defend himself. Yeah. Whereas Charles Anthon could come back and say, like, hey, I didn't, I didn't, I say, didn't say that. that. Yeah. Um, so again, that's why that part, that very end part where he goes back to Samuel Mitchell and Samuel Mitchell verifies everything but doesn't provide any certificate or something – Let's let's take that with a huge old huge old grain of salt. Yeah, because okay. he was very conveniently dead. <laughs> Waited for that. This was all a very low stakes way of keeping Harris as the financial whale uh, on the hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joseph very keenly chose reformed Egyptian as like what was on this because it was like a hot button word at the time. It was a meme, if you will in occult communities as it was a scientific enough way to capture the imagination of your average like 19th century skeptic like Harris, but esoteric enough that even experts in the field were unable to reliably validate Smith's claims about the gold Bible. Uh, remember John, uh, Champollion, Champollion. He'd only like recently deciphered the basics of Egyptian off of the Rosetta stone at this time. And his publications, which were just like a couple years old when this is all happening, were available to academics, uh, but they were. It was this was all still still in its infancy, and Joseph figured, you know, a non-specific dialect like Reformed Egyptian mm-hmm. was more or less beyond reproach for the foreseeable future. This was just a really convenient way of like hooking in a, a hot button word, and. It's not really anything anybody can validate. So yeah. as long as I keep it un- unavailable enough but tantalizing enough to keep them coming at me and giving yeah. me money, I can keep selling this. And that's that's what he did. It, it's clever. I mean, uh, Down the road, he even buys himself some Egyptian mummies and makes a whole other series on the – like makes a uh, epilogue to the Book of Mormon because he's <laughs> – just to keep them coming. Yeah, he's um, taking little pieces of truth that – are very, very interesting for that mm-hmm. time, I'm sure. And esoteric enough that most people have heard something about right. it, but don't, yeah. they can't like call you on it. Right. Very much like, oh, again, and I keep bringing it up, very <laughs> much like L. Ron Hubbard did. <laughs> he was very well read, uh, not the most educated, but very well read, mm-hmm. just like Joseph. Mm-hmm. And he could bullshit you. And unless you had read the same books as him, mm-hmm. unless you knew, ex- like, that's, that's not your story. Right. That's... I read this and this other. Right. Few people could call him on his bullshit at the time. Yeah. And he was just intelligent enough to like play that game. Joseph is exactly the same person. <laughs> it's creepy sometimes. Anyway, uh, in reality, in reality, remember that's all Joseph's 
interpretation of this years later while Harris is actually excommunicated from the church. He's retelling the story. In reality, according to Charles Anthon himself, he said that uh, Harris did indeed arrive with a sample of characters and a note from Dr. Mitchell stating that he could not make sense of the gold plate facsimile. Okay, so... Um, First scientist he went to was like, I can't read this. Yeah, but go check this out. You you try him. Okay. Yeah. Um, So Anthon very rationally continued with the following, quote, What a monstrous lie the Mormons are uttering when they say that I promised to decipher the piece of writing in question. If the original were brought to me, I told the man Harris at once that he was imposed upon, meaning being conned, and that the writing was mere trash. I never (laughs) can... I never profess to be acquainted with the vast number of languages of which the Mormons speak and would deserve to be laughed at if I thought that any other language that gibberish were required to obtain a knowledge of the contents of the paper that was handed me. Okay. It's very nicely calling with this bullshit. Yeah. Um, um, no, I'm not even very nicely, honestly. He's yeah, being just Mike fucking right. Yeah, basically. Uh, sh- sh- and so they weren't even hieroglyphs, it sounds like. It sounds like they were just gibberish. Uh, yeah, I'll... Uh, We'll show the characters here. Like, okay, so these are not hieroglyphs. They they look like just like letters. Like one's a very fancy H, one's a very fancy L, all in old script. There's a bunch of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine vertical lines with one long horizontal line underneath it. There's, a There's seven. also no translation. It's just a bunch of symbols. Yeah, they're just So the, of... the account by Joseph that he get, he provided a, a translation with it. It doesn't follow the, <laughs> the record of what we have. Um, There's numbers, but these aren't like... They aren't really very creative. There's letters and numbers. And... <laughs> Ironically enough, in in one of Anthon's other statements that I didn't provide, he very correctly is uh, is um, and Dan Vogel again kind of proved this. He did a really good breakdown of how Joseph created these characters. But Anthon makes a statement where he's like, um, someone with like a book of languages or like a dictionary of Latin to English to German to this sat with like three or four books open and maybe a calendar of the Mayan. um, I I don't even agree with that much. Like these are like, uh, maybe one is like the symbol of Neptune. Maybe one of like, it's not even that. It's a bunch of ticks and marks and like like, occult symbols with like dashes through them. It it looks like if I had made a language when I was in fifth grade. (laughs) He's no token. He's definitely no no token. No, absolutely not. But I wouldn't even say like anyone who's studied in any kind of sense other language. While he may have ignorantly provided this, uh, Joseph changes that when he gets more resources. He meets he meets a couple characters who are actually really educated and know a couple languages, and he and learns he, and he hires them as tutors. Okay, and he starts taking that's like, good. He's actually this sucks. pretty. By the time he dies, he's pretty competent in like German and Hebrew, and he's a he's a well 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 educated Kabbalist. The sigils at that they point. use are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like this is clear that he this is. Very he'd seen he'd seen books with stuff like this in it, but he I think he just kind of mm-hmm. created it. This up. is on the fly. So anyway, Joe Joe didn't translate any of this nonsense until after Harris arrived, after Harris returned back, according to Harris himself. So Harris apparently didn't get a translation like Joseph said until he came back and was like, "So these guys can't translate this." Okay, and Joseph. <laughs> Very, so making this a win-win situation for Joseph, either some asshole college professor who doesn't know better validates my page of gibberish, or it makes Joe an immediate expert in the field of his own creation, this <laughs> reformed Egyptian. Or Harris returns with nothing, and Joe simply pivots to this Isaiah prophecy and spontaneously translates the gibberish into English before Harris's eyes, buying back his good graces. So Harris is like, oh, these guys can't translate this. And Joseph is like, I can. (laughs) And he translates it in front of him, and Harris is just like, and Joseph's like, did you know about this section in Isaiah? And Harris is like, oh, my God, it's prophecy fulfilled. When very, <laughs> it's pretty obvious what's going on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, Harris. I mean. So it's a, it's a bit of a bumble. There's everybody's has conflicting accounts. Remember, Joseph is retelling this through Martin and <laughs> da, 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 oh. Anthon himself basically says uh, unquestioningly that this is just 
gibberish nonsense. Absolutely not. I did not fucking do this. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And laugh at me if I did. Yeah. (laughs) Like if I really, I, I barely, I saw a couple of Champollion's papers on Egyptian. Like I'd read them, but Mm -hmm. I don't speak Egyptian. Right. I can't say that I know what a reformed Egyptian means. He was pretty, pretty rational about his, uh, his argument against this. It's just like, you're ridiculous. Even you don't know what I, you don't know enough about languages to make it sound like I do. (laughs) (laughs) Harris uh, then returns to Harmony, Pennsylvania after this whole thing. And, you know, Joseph validates this supposed fruition of the Isaiah prophecy. And so Martin is convinced more than ever of Joseph's ability, uh, summing up that this, this whole trip in words, quote, the most learned men had exhausted their knowledge of letters in the vain effort to decipher the characters. You know, they say ignorance is bliss, but then I read things about Martin Harris and I'm just like, I don't think so. I think being ignorant is really dangerous to society in general. Uh, Ignorant and uh, wealthy. And wealthy, yes. Dangerous combination. Unfortunately, one that is very common. Most common. Uh, Upon his return, Harris takes over the position as scribe. And after, so like he did all this and then he takes over for Emma as scribe. After the first 116 pages of the Book of Mormon had been recorded, which is completes what was known as the lost book of Lehi that I mentioned. Okay. The uh, Harris, who was still in contact with Smith and like helping him complete the translation at this time, asked to take the unfinished manuscript home with him to show his family. Cause okay. You see, Martin had Look what a I'm very smart for. wife, yeah. <laughs> and it probably wasn't long after Martin paid off Joseph's debts and began funding the translation process that, you know, Lucy Harris began to reconsider her interactions with the Smiths mm-hmm. and was justifiably probably taking note of the fact that still no one had laid eyes on these uh, plates but Joseph Smith Jr., and moreover, that covered in the manner in which they were allowed to see the plates, Lucy formulated a rather eloquent solution to determining the true character of Joseph Smith. So she was nagging Harris, but I think she had a plan the whole time. Yeah, well, and you know, he was a man, first off, and a wealthy man, so no one's going to confront him probably on things like him being swindled like that because it's going to offend him, but his wife, in the little knitting circle of... Oh, gossiping all about yeah it. i'm sure they're kind of like hey she's probably talked about it a bit and was <laughs> you know like oh this is something we're kind of getting into and they're just like uh that sounds like the family that just had a trial over in the other mm-hmm. town yonder exactly um, i was there i was there and i, I was eating my peanuts <laughs> so so uh lucy lucy demands that martin procure sections translated and I, again, I think this is a plan of hers so that she could see for herself either the fruits of the financial contributions mm-hmm. or whether or not her husband was getting swindled. Right, yeah. So on June 15th of 1828, as a side note, Emma gives birth to their first son named Alvin oh. after his brother. Oh, um, who, oh this is who, their first son. Okay. Her, their first son who very tragically dies almost immediately after birth. Sorry, um, I thought this had to do about the book, and now I'm sad. And this, uh, again, kind of helped double down on his uh, decision Thing. to translate instead of yeah, leave that to his firstborn, first yeah. who just died. So about a week or two later, probably under pressure from his distraught wife, Emma, he and her joined the Methodist church, uh, like the rest of the Hale family. Um, oh, okay. So she's probably really upset. He's just doing whatever he can to help upset, her. Yeah. But upon hearing news of this, Emma's brother accuses Joseph of being a disgraceful character and then threatens to expose Joseph for exactly what he is to the larger community, uh-huh. lest he cease his associations with the Methodist church. So he kind of blackmails oh. him by just like, okay. just stay out of the church and I won't tell people what you're doing. I don't fucking care what you do. I just want to know where my sister's okay. Again, so like, Damn, Hale, the Hales seem like good family. Yeah. And it sucks that. So they want him out. in the Methodist church or they don't? They don't. Okay. And they're like, I don't, don't join my fucking church. Like, I don't care that you swindle these stupid money diggers and stuff, yeah. but like, don't come to my church with your nonsense. Well, and he's talking about a gold Bible and angels and stuff, and they're kind of like, it's that family thing where like I'll I'll support you how I can, but just don't bring your nonsense to my community. Stay out of this, or I will tell them exactly who and what you are. 
And so Joseph very wisely obliges him. He gets out of the Methodists okay. uh, almost immediately. But during this tragic period and likely taking place inappropriately <laughs> in what seems over a, a period of several months, Martin Harris continually asks Joseph for this unfinished manuscript. I totally understand why he's doing it, but this is maybe not the best time to nag Joseph and Emma about taking the unfinished manuscript home. Yeah. Anyway, Joseph says he prays about this, and three times the angel refuses him. It was on the third time, excuse me. So like traditional occult practices, mm -hmm. it's the third time that this happens. Anyway, uh, the Lord permits Joe to give Harris the manuscript, so long as he swears to not let anyone but his family see the pages. Okay. Around the end of June, Martin takes the uh, unfinished manuscript, the 116 pages, that later became known as the Book of Lehi. He takes them home for the Harrises to see. There are once again a lot of conflicting reports here, <laughs> but it seems that Martin Harris immediately went counter his covenant with God and showed a lot of people outside his family the manuscript. <laughs> um, Lucy Harris, having now firmly convinced herself that the local occult con artist was now swindling her husband, okay. stole the manuscript and allegedly burned most of it. <gasps> Uh, knowing it would be impossible for Smith to reproduce another okay. copy Ooh. that was perfect to the earlier one, Cleverly. she very wisely kept a small section of the manuscript so that if Smith made an attempt to recreate the lost manuscript, that she could publicly reveal him as a fraud. Yep. Very, very, very. Like, Martin Harris, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. Mm -hmm. Lucy Harris, smart. Um, <laughs> but Joseph pivots again. Of course. Just weeks after the death of his first son, uh, leaving an understandably upset Emma, <laughs> he travels to Manchester to confront Harris and like, I need this manuscript back. Huh. After Martin breaks down, he like freaks out at breakfast and is just like, oh, I lost it. We're all fucked. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and he like admits that they're nowhere to be found. He's like torn up pillows and mattresses, even just looking for whatever. Joseph? Uh, Harris. Harris he, like, tears a place, tears part of his own place. He freaks out at breakfast and he tells him that it's lost. He's like, I've searched everywhere. I've ripped open like pillowcases. Oh, looking this thing. okay. So he didn't know what happened and his yeah. wife did it behind his back. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Joseph apparently husband. throws a small tantrum as well. <laughs> and he's just screaming. And he apparently is quoted as saying, oh, my God, all is lost. All is lost. What shall I do? I wish I could be. <laughs> right? the I know. It's just poor Harris. I, I just I feel I'd bad I'd want to sit Harris right on point. Lucy Harris's shoulder. <laughs> the only smart person in the room. After he uh, calms down a bit, Joseph returns to Harmony uh, and Emma. Uh, he claims that the interpreters, not the magical spectacles, but the ability to interpret, they use the Mormons use the term Urm and Thummim. Mm -hmm. uh, what they they when they say Urm and Thummim, they uh -huh. think magic spec. Okay. What they don't know is that originally they termed Urm and Thummim the ability to communicate. Because remember, Joseph never used the magic specs. Right. He used the stone in his hat. But the Urm and Thummim to him was the ability to, to do this. So to him, it was an action. Yeah. So okay. he tells Emma and everyone else that the Urm and Thummim, the ability to translate, has mm -hmm. been taken from him, oh. as well as the magic spectacles, the breastplate, and the gold Bible. You guys fucked me over hard. By the angel Moroni, mm -hmm. and, or Nephi, depending on the story. And the ability to prophesy or interpret is taken again. So like... Damn. Remember that none of the eyewitnesses to the translation process ever reported that Smith was using magical spectacles. Mm -hmm. Spectacles. Yeah. Um, but rather the stone. Yep. And, and you know, it just <laughs> it seems a really convenient thing to just like my wife just gave birth. We lost a baby. Mm. I have a financial backing for the next couple months. We need to take some time and regroup. And I don't want anyone bothering me anymore. So you know what? All that shit I've been talking about, I don't even have it. Yeah. I don't have it anymore. Don't bother me about it. The angel took it. The angel took it. I can't do anything. Did the angel take it because it was mad that they lost the that manuscript? That they lost the manuscript. Yeah. And we'll get into what happens and how he pivots off of this. Because okay. again, Joe, Joe just is a great, great at pivoting through a tragedy. <laughs> 
any, like I said, Joseph likely had another reason for uh, the angelic reprimand where everyone was in trouble. As mentioned, he hadn't been using magic spectacles or the attached breastplate, and no one had seen either of them. And after all the heat he faced for allowing visual inspection of the gold Bible uh, from those three witnesses that <laughs> tore off the thing and saw like a masonry brick, Joseph needed an inarguable excuse for not being able to produce this for the next few months. Later, Joseph further covered his ass by printing the following explanation for all of this in uh, the 1830, the first edition of the Book of Mormon. Uh, bear with me here because it's a little long, but Joseph... Oh, he and, printed this explanation mm-hmm, in the book. Okay. In the book. Uh, bear with me here. Uh, Joseph loved to talk in this like prophet voice, mm. which if you're like me, you'll come to hate. <laughs> Please do it in a prophet voice. I kind of—he well, had a new, uh, a certain accent that had a twang to it, which I think adds a whole different layer to this yeah. when you hear him talking in his prophet voice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I can't do it oh, for that right. long. Okay. So, um, all right, I'll, read on. I'll do it in a thematic. I'll do it in my prince voice. Ooh. <laughs> to the reader. As many false reports have been circulated respecting the following work, and also many unlawful measures taken by the evil designing persons to destroy me, and also the work, I would inform you that I, translated by the gift and power of God, and caused to be written 116 pages. Damn. That which I took from the book of Lehi, which was an account abridged from the plates of Lehi by the hand of Mormon, which said account, some person or persons, <laughs> having stolen and kept from me, notwithstanding my utmost exertions to recover it again, and being commanded of the Lord that I should translate the same over again, for Satan had put it into their hearts to tempt the Lord their God by altering the words that they did read contrary from that which I translated and caused to be written. And if I should bring forth again the same words, or in other words, if I should translate the same over again, they would publish that which they had stolen, and Satan would stir up the hearts of this generation, and they would not receive this work. But behold, the Lord said unto (laughs) But behold, the Lord said unto me, I will not suffer that Satan shall accomplish his evil designs in this thing. Therefore thou shalt translate from the plates of Nephi. Until ye come to that which ye translated, which ye retained, and behold, ye shall publish it in the record of Nephi, and thus I will continue, <laughs> and thus I will confound those, you're confounding a lot, yeah, uh, who have altered my words, I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work, yea, I will shew unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil." Wherefore, to be obedient unto the commands of God, I have, through his memory and mercy, accomplished that which he hath commanded me respected this thing. I would also inform you that the plates of which thou hast spoken were found in the township of Manchester, Ontario County, New York. <laughs> nice try, Satan. Nice try, Satan. Mm. Pivot! <laughs> um, so, as should make sense by now, Joseph begins making a series of revelations at this point that later became known as the Doctrine and Covenants. I think I mentioned them, which are a separate series of documents from the Book of Mormon currently being translated at this time. And you see, for the remainder of his career, Joseph uses a sort of radio to God whenever uh, he needs to ask guidance or like clarification on a specific church or doctrinal issue. And God gives him a direct, probably 100% never fake answer. So he has got a direct line to god any time and lo and behold most often uh it scrutinizes smith but simultaneously benefits him by basically talking him up as the only competent person in the room so god's like yeah you suck but you're the only guy that can do this job (laughs) (laughs) it's essentially every doctrine and covenants article is like joseph is an idiot and fucked this whole thing up we get it But I'm God, and he's my guy, and he's the only guy that can do this. (laughs) I'm not going to read you the Doctrine and Covenants, because the whole thing is like a few hundred pages of that. Oh, my god! And it's unbearable. But (laughs) believing Mormons today and then uh, believed this was exactly what Joseph sold it was. It was... uh, 
more skeptical members or those outside of the faith that see it for what it is. Joe coming up with a handy con to get his way while managing hundreds or and even thousands of Christian fanatics. Uh, oh, what's that, God? Oh, your f- your servants are being dumb and need to listen to Joseph. Thanks, God. <laughs> I thought so, too. I am so using this on the kid. <laughs> There's a lot of dogma and ritual that gets introduced through this channel that I'll keep highlighting, this Doctrine and Covenants, this, like, Radio to God stuff. I'll keep mentioning it occasionally. Okay, We're like, please. this is a point where Joseph asks God, and God's like, I fixed the problem. Guys, have, like, a children, ring. children, <laughs> calm down. Joseph's got it. Um, oh. I just find it beyond mere coincidence that this is the moment where Joe's mutant power of totally non-biased deity communication first emerges. Is uh, this first real crisis? Yeah. Um, I, I hope I'm, I laid down the sarcasm thick enough there. Anyways, uh, one of Joe's first revelations is to, of course, reprimand himself and Harris, uh, and then confirms his belief that wicked Satanists were going to falsify his, his sacred record. I would like to mention that above it in that like long-winded passage, it basically said, you translated the book of Lehi mm-hmm. and these Satanists stole your papers. Right. And either they were going to wait for the publication of the book of Mormon, which the, you would, of course, you would, of course, Joseph, you would, of course, make a 100% perfect replication of the book of Lehi. Yes. <laughs> and if you did, yeah. they would falsify the manuscript and produce the manuscript for the public and be like, see, he didn't produce a 100% accurate thing. Or they wait for you to not publish it, and then they publish the account and like, see, he's a false prophet. Because he... this very thin logic <laughs> is, is uh, basically uh, because of this, I, God, have found a way to circumvent this. I knew this all was going to happen. I'm God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had... The next book in the Book of Mormon, much like the Bible, it's just like a progressional series yeah. of, of people. After the Book of Lehi, Lehi's son, Nephi, is the next guy who writes. And I, because I'm God and knew this was going to happen, made Nephi give two records. Nephi's first record was supposed to be his own account of the Book of Lehi. So I basically give you an abridged version of the Book of Lehi because I knew it was going to get stolen. So you produce an abridged version of the Book of Lehi, which has all this content, but it's, of course, not the same as the Book of Lehi. Right. So we defeat the Satanists. <laughs> and the second Book of Nephi is actually his account of his own life and stuff. So see, I'm God. I got this. Joe's cool. And that's his pivot. So, and again, this is, that's how he, this is the first time he gets his like, oh, what's that, God? Oh, oh. Oh, oh, you fixed all this. Okay, cool. Does he tell? I need a few months. He tells this to Harris. Yeah, he tells this to Harris. So how do you know that Lucy Harris is the one that did all of this? Uh, this is her own accounts. Uh, so she, she admits she to burning it? She and one of her it? sister-in-laws. Yeah, I'll actually, I'll give you one of her quotes in just a second, okay. actually. But a lot of this is coming from her and Harris and um, other Oh, because that's involved. right. They're excommunicated from the church. Eventually, yes. But at the moment, Harris is deep in this. Yes. Right, 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 right. Um, actually, ironically enough, uh, Joe may not have needed to do the whole like radio to God thing. Mm-hmm. Because again, Harris was a uh, good businessman. He uh-huh. saw a chance to make profit off of all of this. It seems that Harris may have been more astute than I often give him credit for, as he may have also been on to Joe as a con artist or was perhaps supporting his work. Uh, because Harris, again, as a good businessman, saw a potential to profit off of a religion touting a new Bible for Christianity. This yeah. was a publishing opportunity. Yeah. And this next quote is from Lucy Harris, actually. Okay. So, quote, Whether the Mormon religion be true or false, I leave the world to judge, for its effects on Martin Harris have been to make him more cross, turbulent, and abusive to me. Oh. His whole object was to make money off of it. Okay. I will give you a proof of this. One day at Peter Harris' house, Abigail Harris's husband, who uh, I'll give you an account from Abigail in just a minute. She backs this claim up. And Abigail and Peter, is this his brother? P- yes. Okay. And Abigail is his sister-in-law. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So again, Lucy Harris. I told him that he had better leave the company of the Smiths as their religion was false. To this, he replied, quote, if you would leave me alone, I could make money out of it. Unquote. 
It is in vain for the Mormons to deny these facts, as they are well known to most uh, of his former neighbors, unquote. Um, and again, this te- uh, I'll just skip it because we're running out of time. But again, Abigail Harris, Martin Harris's sister-in-law, mm-hmm. was in the room when this happened mm-hmm. and verified that but it did in fact happen. Say this. Okay. So, I mean, he could have just seen it as like, hey, they've got this thing going and it seems pretty good. And I could make some money if I just... Exactly. Ca- you know, so I tend, to le- I tend to believe that he did believe Smith. Yeah. But was also like, even if it's not anything, we can still make some money off this and it'll be fine. Yeah. Like, stop nagging me and it'll be okay. Right. <laughs> and apparently he uh, became so cross that uh, uh, with her at one point that he like beats her with a, the end of a whip. And he be- like, becomes physically abusive to Lucy Harris at some point. Hmm. So I feel even worse for Lucy Harris and I begin to feel less and less sorry for Martin Harris at the Oh, well, yeah. This. I mean, whether um, he didn't know or he did. It... He eventually became a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Shitty. So, but fear not. Uh, I know Joseph has lost the ability to interpret, but he again receives the Urim and Thummim. Uh, on this regular date of September 22nd, where he communes with the angel, oh, um, yeah. but on 1828. And whether because of immense guilt piled onto Harris for losing the manuscript or for a chance to make immense profits from the gullible Christians in the Burndover district, Harris falls right back into Joe's pocket once the ability to interpret the plates is returned uh, the following season. We'll end it there because we're running over time. But... Yeah. Uh, as this is a good place to leave things as well, I think. Anyway, uh, we're about to introduce two characters that are a lot of fun that are from the Smiths' past that I think we've talked about before. But it's it gets really interesting from here, and this is where people get to see the plates for the first time, but not with their natural naked eyes. They see them in vision, Ooh, which is where I think fun. we get our first example of Joe uh, administering possible entheogens to a group and getting mm-hmm. them to see the same thing. Okay. So this is where th- this is where the Mormons and drugs, Mormons and drugs. It's finally Mormons and drugs it's here, people. We're now. Well, it's it's next time. Eight, <laughs> eight episodes in. <laughs> finally, Mormons and drugs. <laughs> well, there was drugs in there, but speculative. Uh, uh, well, no, speculative. everyone was consensually drinking and having a good old time. That's true. <clears throat> so alcohol is a drug. It's probably laced alcohol, but again, speculate. Yeah, that's true. All right. Anyway, uh, may well. We might do we might do another rant episode in between. Yeah. Then and now. I think we we'll did see. discuss that. I haven't decided yet. We'll decide that later. Okay. But we'll see you later. 